Let us turn together to the book of Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We'll read the whole chapter, but focus on verse 13 through 25 in the message. Let us stand for the reading and the hearing of God's word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father Of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The grass withers and flower fades, but God's word endures forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. We ask, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts 
this night would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Perhaps you have a life verse, a special verse that hangs in your house somewhere, or one that you reflect on as you go about your days and weeks. Perhaps one that you mull over as you go through certain difficulties. I don't think there's an inherent problem with having one, uh, unless, of course, it excludes all of the others and creates a canon within the canon, as we were talking about this morning in Sunday school. Did Paul have a life verse from the Old Testament, the scriptures he had known since childhood? Now, he may not have put it this way, but I do think there are certain passages that are so defining, so formative for his own thinking, that they are a foundation from which he derives his own teaching and his own writings. One of the verses must be this one. The righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. How do you live, Paul? He says in Galatians 2. The life I live, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian's life then is one that is defined by faith. By faith, by faith. The world, on the other hand, lives by sight, by sight, by sight. It's trusting the eye. In fact, even those who live according to the eyes and trust their own science or reason or rationality still at the bottom exercise belief in something. You have to trust and depend upon something. It's inescapable. But faith in the biblical sense is Faith in God's action in Christ. And so faith comes into its own when the object of faith is finally revealed as Christ comes into the world and the good news is announced concerning his death and resurrection. Look back with me at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This verse being so crucial as the starting place of what this epistle is all about. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Faith is the starting line of the Christian life, and it's the finish line. It's something from which you will never graduate or go beyond or leave behind. Faith always at the center of our lives. Why does Paul know this? As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is not a doctrine that he invented on his own. It's not sort of a Pauline uh, idea uniquely. It's one that Jesus reminds his disciples of over and over. What does he say when he works healing for someone? Your faith has made you well. Or when he's rebuking them, he says, Oh, you of little faith. Faith is crucial for the life in the kingdom. Have faith like a child. And in the context in Habakkuk, in which we read in the Old Testament, we also learn that there is a contrast between the one who depends upon himself 
represented in the Chaldeans, who was this, who were this mighty army who came and with great uh, power overwhelmed the Israelite. But even the righteous Israelite who has exhausted his own resources, whose own strength is sapped, he may still, he must still live by faith as Habakkuk 3 at the end will say, though the fig tree does not blossom, the vine tree does not give fruit, yet I will rejoice in God, my maker. The righteous Israelite, the righteous Christian, lives by faith alone. Faith is that outward-looking, Christ-embracing, joy-filling gift, which we know from Hebrews 11 It's impossible to please God without faith. So a very simple question for you tonight. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? What do you trust in? The Heidelberg Catechism this evening talks about two related questions. Firstly, as you see in your bulletin question 20, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished? Through Adam. Answer, no. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. So this is a denial of universalism or the idea that everyone is in the end redeemed no matter how they respond to Christ. No, it takes faith. And so the question naturally becomes in Question 21, what then is this faith by which we are united to Christ? Answer, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merit. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. Life in faith involves these things. And as we take up our consideration from Romans 4 tonight, we look at a very important figure, perhaps the most important when we come to the question of what is true faith. Abraham, called the man of faith. Those of you who are engineers, perhaps building an airplane wing, you know that you have to make a mold or a cast to make the first one, and everything follows from that. Well, Abraham is sort of the template or the cast for our faith. Everything about our faith that is real and true is shared by Abraham, our forefather, in the faith. Now, you might think to yourself, well, he lived 4,000 years ago. What difference does it make what he did. But Paul says at the end of the chapter, the words uh, in verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. We're to take those words of Genesis 15, as it were, in the present tense, written not simply for Abraham, but for us, because we too will receive the blessing of God only in the way that Abraham did by faith. So tonight we can walk in the ancient paths and be led upon the highway to eternal life by considering what is this faith. Faith always involves two 
acts, emptying and filling. Both must happen. You must say yes and amen to Christ's promise, but you must also say no to the word and the message of the flesh and the world and the devil. Faith empties itself of all but Christ. Firstly, faith empties itself of law and is filled with promise. Romans 4, verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul's argument here is from redemptive history. How is one going to stand righteous before God? Now, throughout the Romans, he's really arguing with this uh, sparring partner, so to speak, this rhetorical questioner who is a Jew and who wants to believe that Jews are still in a superior position to Gentiles within the church. And Paul is going to say, no, the justification comes to the Gentiles in exactly the same way as it came to the Jews. Look back in chapter 3, verse 27. What becomes of our boasting? Is it, it is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Boasting in anything but Christ is excluded and not possible. Why? Because fundamentally, Jews and Gentiles are in the same position. Romans chapter 3 verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That fundamental identity of being in Adam, being fallen, being those who have original sin, both in its guilt and its corruption, is true, both of the Jew and the Gentile. Now the Jew might say, but we have Torah, we have the law, particularly in its commandments. It would look over and say, See, Gentile, our heritage is more noble than yours. Our forefathers received the Ten Commandments. Our forefathers heard the voice of Moses and Elijah, the prophets. We stood at the uh, foot of Mount Sinai. We received the sign of circumcision. And so they wear this great tradition like badges on a Boy Scout or medals on a military officer, perhaps thinking themselves upper echelon Christians because of it. But while others might be impressed with these identity markers, certainly God is not. Romans 4, verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. In other words, other people might be impressed with his achievements, but he cannot boast before God, and that's what ultimately counts, that basis for standing before him. In fact, all we have seen in the catechism that all the law does for sinners is to bring wrath. Verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So why is Paul arguing in this manner? It's because the before and after is so crucial. God gave the law after he gave the promise. And since the promise comes first, everything about the promise 
is complete in itself and won't be added to or taken from no matter what he says afterwards. He does not give with one hand and then take with the other. So it's not as if God is introducing the law so that Israel might achieve righteousness and true life. In fact, that was not the case at all. If you look over with me at Galatians chapter 5, where it perhaps is even put more patently and clearly, Galatians 5, 2 through 4, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. It's like being a mountain climber, a rock climber, being held up by a rope, and then to cut that cord that is you're holding on to, that's pulling you up, and you have to go it alone. That's what Paul says. You're, if you go it alone by the works of the law, you will not, in any case, be justified. Before Moses comes down with the law of God in his hands, Abraham receives the righteousness of God, as it were, in his hands. And so it can't be through the law. It has to be another way. God that would not rip up the covenant that he made with Abraham. This would be unthinkable. His promises can never be null and void. And so the Jew must empty himself of all law-keeping when it comes to status and reputation before God. Notice what he says. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void. In other words, because the promise to Abraham was that all nations would be blessed through him, that means that if one nation says, this is the way we will achieve that life and righteousness, it would actually short-circuit and close off the possibility that the blessing is for all nations. And so Paul says, if it's the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, if that's what you think, then God's original covenant of grace made with Abraham would be canceled, which can never be the case. The Jew must empty himself of all law-keeping together with the Gentile who rests upon any sort of moral code. Romans 3:28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Not simply ceremonial works, the ones associated with ritual purity in the tabernacle, but all works, including obedience to the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Righteousness simply cannot come that way because the flesh is unable to carry out those commandments. He will say in Philippians 3, he must count everything as rubbish, including his heritage, including his zeal for the law. And so faith must refuse to work in the sense that it rests on Christ. Faith in its saving office and function does not contribute anything or give an effort that God meets with a reward. Rather, it rests and receives Christ as he is offered 
in the gospel. So if we want to hone our terms down to their crystal clarity, we're not justified by faith alone. We're justified by faith in Christ alone. And even more sharply, we're justified by Christ who alone saves and that gift is received by faith. This is why there is something about the gospel which makes faith the appropriate means of receiving it, particularly its promissory character. The fact that it's a promise. How do you believe a promise? You trust in it. You receive it as a gift. Children, if you receive a gift from your mom and dad and say, well, before I take it, I'm going to go mow the lawn, so I'll have done something to deserve it. Your parents would say, you don't understand. This is really a gift. It's something that I'm giving you because I love you. You don't deserve it, but here it is. This is what he says in Romans 4.4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Your, when you get your paycheck from your employer, you don't say, thank you, that was so nice and kind of you. No, you earned it. But faith is different. Verse 5, to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This means that faith does not make the gospel true and perfect, but it receives precisely Christ in him crucified because he is sufficient and perfect for all of our needs. As one writer says, true faith is always a listening faith and will at no point stop listening and believing. Faith comes then by the hearing of the ear, by receiving that gift of salvation with open hands, not by works of the law, but by faith alone. But secondly, faith empties, is empty of the self and is filled with strength. Verse 18, in hope Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be Abraham, what does he believe in? It's not as if God tells him to do something that is manageable and he could uh, carry it out. No, in fact, God does not in any way say, let's partner together in a very important project or endeavor. If you do your part, I'll do mine. No, God's timing of the covenant shows the sheer impossibility of Abraham making any sort of contribution to the fulfillment of the promise. Notice what Paul says in verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Abraham barely had the strength to bury or to dig his own grave, which he was planning on doing right at the time that God comes to him and says, you will have an heir from your own body. So it's not only a question of who Abraham is, but when he receives the promise. He's not a young man in the days of his vim and vigor, but in the days where his strength is all but spent, haggardly and worn. Look at his own body. He feels the sore infirmity of his hands, of his feet, of his limbs, of his muscles. And there's just no way he can muster anywhere close to what it takes to do what God promises. Not only Abraham, but whom? Sarah. Or when he considered the barrenness 
of Sarah's womb. God has said that it's through Sarah that he's going to produce an heir, and not Sarah the young and fertile bride, but in her frail years when she is weary, how he has loved his wife but knows she is barren. They have tried for months and years and decades and had only come to the conclusion which gave them grief. No child could be produced by them together. It's in this circumstance, it's in this setting that God comes and says, you will have an heir who will receive the promises, who will carry the seed for all nations. And in all the factors around him, if he was living according to sight, he would say, this is simply preposterous. It is ridiculous to expect that this will happen. But he said the very opposite. Verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He looks out that night into the starry heavens and he simply believes the God who made the promise. Not only that the promise was true, but especially because the God who made it is faithful. He knew that. He had confidence in that. So no matter how much he looked around and saw the contrary in his own body, in the appearances of things around, he had faith in the word. If someone comes up to you on the street and says, I'm going to give you a new car, your first reaction would probably be, well, what are you selling, really? But if your dad told you, we're going to go out to the dealership today and I'm going to buy you your first car, you would almost certainly know that he would do that. Why? Because you know your father. You know that you can trust him. You won't be disappointed. Abraham knew the God who told him, as many as the stars in the sky, so shall your offspring be. So that's how, in the face of the opposite, Abraham believed and was rewarded by God. Who but God could bring this about? John Calvin has a wonderful comment on this when he says our circumstances are all in opposition to the promises of God he promises us immortality yet we are surrounded by mortality and corruption he declares that he accounts us as just yet we are covered with sins he testifies that he is propitious and benevolent toward us yet outward signs threaten his wrath what then are we to do we must close our eyes disregard ourselves and all things connected with us so that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. That's what faith says. I'm going to close my eyes to the appearance of the world because at the bottom, the world is not true. God's word, his oath is. It's an opening of our eyes to the message of Christ, not to the pattern of the spirit of this age, but to the covenant that God has given so that we might believe, as Abraham did in verse 21, that we are fully convinced that God is able 
to do everything he has promised. This is the Christian faith. Have you ever thought about how interesting and distinctive and exceptional it is that our religion is called a faith? Islam, Judaism, Mormonism really aren't faiths, and they don't really call themselves that, but codes of conduct or lifestyles. Why? Because at their core, they're based on the law, what you do, how you live. And so you don't believe the law, you do the law by carrying out what it requires. But we call it the Christian faith because really at the foundation of it all is belief in the gospel. Just as a child believes what his dad tells him, so we believe our father in everything he declares and to know that it is true. God speaks the truth. We can know it. And so we empty ourselves of our own efforts and trust in God's strength. But lastly, we empty ourselves of fear and are filled with Christ. Empty ourselves of fear and are filled with Christ. As the Heidelberg says, faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God reveals in his word. We have to know to have faith. We're not saved by a contentless Christ. Faith, as one person puts it, is neither a general conviction that something is right, nor a merely private opinion, nor partial knowledge. Like they say, what you do not know exactly, you believe. Sort of, when all is said and done, you throw up your hands and say, okay, I'll just believe it. No, faith involves knowledge, because as we heard this morning, we Believe in the one who has made himself known, who has opened himself for our possession, that we might belong to him. Christ doesn't hide or disguise himself like a chameleon, but opens himself to us and opens the Father to us in that way. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We should take pleasure in knowing him by faith. That's why the Reformed Church has always stressed the importance of an intelligent faith. That is to say, a faith that exercises the faculty of the mind. We believe to understand, but also as understanding grows, so does our faith. But at the same time, remember, faith is not just assenting to certain information as if all you're saying is, yes, I happen to know there was someone named Jesus of Nazareth, who did many extraordinary deeds and who claimed certain things. Remember, as James says, even the demons know who Christ is and they tremble because of his transcendence. So it's not a bare historical faith which sees the person and work of Christ as detached from our own lives and destiny. Rather, it is what they call fiducia or this trusting and depending and leaning At the same time, Heidelberg says, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sin. Faith not only comprehends what God says, but lays a hold of it, embraces it. As Galatians 2 says, by faith in the Son of God who loved 
not just everyone, all his elect, but he loved me. And that's what faith should be for you too. That you know that God is speaking in the second person. I am your God. You are my child. To comprehend it and to cling to it without being dismayed, without being hopeless, but being courageous and confident. And so the result will be, verse 24, it will be counted to us as righteousness. Those who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes.